You were listening to the Comics Pals review series. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, we are here to review not one, not two, but three different comics today. We've got three number ones, actually, which is pretty exciting. Uh, what a week. Joker, number one. We've got Children of the Atom, number one. And we've got Proctor Valley Road, number one. So excited about these. Um, the whole crew is here today for this review episode so thank you guys for joining us and thank you at home for listening if you're curious about who we are and you want more from us we are the comics pals we drop a uh, an episode of our show every single week we talk about the comics characters that you all know and love wherever it is that you can find them so we review the movies the tv shows now and all that good jazz we talk about it and we talk about the comics industry at large. So if those things interest you, you can listen to our show every Monday when it drops outside of that. Uh, we do book clubs. We do, we watch, we're going to be watching Falcon winter soldiers. So you can check that out as well. And if you want to chat with us, you can get us on social at the comics pals. You can leave us a review or a rating, wherever it is that you listen uh, and get us at the comics pals at gmail.com. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, like, comment, all that jazz. It's free to do, and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you. Now, without further ado, let's get into these book reviews. We're going to start with the book that I think the most people here did not want to read, uh, Joker, number one. This is by James Tinian, uh, who wrote it with Gillian March, Gilliam March, rather, on art, with Arif Prianto on colors, and Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, and then there is a backup series, a, a punchline backup uh, written by Sam Johns and James Tinian with art by Mirka and Dolfo, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr. and letters by Ariana Mayer. So uh, obviously, I think that on its face, a Joker book sounds like a bad idea. Hot take. I think this was a great idea. Yes. Also a hot take. Agreed. When you you mean what this book actually is? Yes. Like okay. the idea for the book. Hot take. I'm in. I'm jumping on that. This is a great issue. <laughs> you know what? I think from like a publication standpoint, I don't think it is a bad idea. Joker is No, like, of course it's not. Yeah, so. You want to print some fucking money, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just meant like a, a story starring the Joker as the main character probably although it's going to make a ton of money probably doesn't serve the joker character very well because it's overexposure but and we've talked a lot about overexposure as it relates to the joker anyway yeah. uh but this book presents the character in a way that doesn't at least for the first issue doesn't do anything to diminish him mm -hmm. or make me you know tired of him or anything like that it's a very different story than what it seems like it, what you would expect when you see joker number one yeah I, I i saw the cover originally and i feel like i mentioned this maybe on the show or just so you guys i was like yeah no this is not what i want to see and then seeing this maybe six seven images in panels of him and having gordon be our lead character threw me off based off that cover. And so I was like, oh, this is actually genuinely uh, a detective story. It felt like a James Bond story um, because I, I had just finished, uh, this week also came out, Agent of Spectre, James Bond number one. And it had a similar like, wait, hold on, we need you to kill somebody. And I read that first and I'm like, oh my God, look, it's James Bond because this is the same the same premise. It's like, hey, wait, hold on. We need you to kill somebody. I, I think if you're going to do a villain title and the character isn't like an anti-villain or an anti-hero type thing I think the best way of approaching it is having him be like a, you know not be the main character but like the focus of the story narratively so to speak you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah it, it like reminds me of like any good you know like slasher monster kind of movie right like you want the villain to feel like this like i think the joker is the coolest when he feels you know bigger than he is right when he's mm -hmm. looming more than he's actually on page or on screen um you think about like the dark knight right like well, he's on screen for like 15 minutes of that movie and it's like two and a half hours long <laughs> and he steals the show um so yeah the idea of him being kind of this 
thing that I hope we're going to be working toward rather than seeing so much of him actually throughout is something that I really wasn't expecting and that immediately uh, clicked with me. And it's funny because, you know, Marco, you said the thing about how kind of getting in, it immediately threw you off. And uh, on the first page, it says that uh, that it's a, a prologue. And, mm-hmm. I, and I worried that that was just the prologue. Because I was like, oh, I really like this. I kind of just want this to be the book. And then when it kept going, I was like, oh, all right, cool, great. <laughs> yeah, to Tinian's credit, like I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Okay, let's follow the Joker now. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but it didn't happen. Uh, so speaking of which, the the book features really Jim Gordon as kind of the main character. Mm, yeah. Which was cool for me because I've missed the character a lot since yeah. – uh, since Scott Snyder's Batman, I was a big fan of Jim Gordon as Batman uh, in that specific story, the way it was told. And I haven't really seen him much since that storyline. So this was pretty cool to get reacquainted with the character after so long. Um, and the way that they frame him and his relationship to the Joker um, was really powerful the idea that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of crime in the world a lot of people do bad things a lot of people commit crimes but not a lot of people are you know truly evil monstrous people and this book confronts that idea um in a way that i think a lot of fans talk about it right like why is the joker even still alive why why would you let a character like this live and persist and uh, in this book, Jim is confronted with that. An old coworker of his kind of tells him, "When you see evil, you you, you shoot. You you, know, you don't you don't hesitate." And, aim for the head, he says. Right, aim for the head. And there's been a lot of hesitation on the part of Jim and Batman, and we see how that has impacted not only those two as people, but everyone in their sphere their sphere of influence. Yeah. You know, uh, Jim's family. Uh, his his son and daughter both negatively impacted by the Joker's existence, and we didn't even have to discuss how it's impacted Batman. So that was, I think, such a smart way to introduce this story, to establish that you know the Joker's funny and cool and everything else that people think about him, but actually he's an evil monster. And you know, I think um, something we always talk about with stories like this, right, is like does the drama or the stakes or or whatever, like the conceit feel manufactured, right? And like this doesn't feel manufactured. Everything you just said, Sean, about how it leverages um, his, his history with the Joker and history that like everybody knows, right? Like it's like some of the most iconic beats in, in the greater Batman, you know, um, I, I guess like, <laughs> yeah, canon, right? Like the, the fan canon, yeah. right? Um we know this. So like the idea of him kind of like being this old retired version of this great, you know, character, this great detective that we know, um, kind of going out for one last ride to take down a character that is kind of his greatest nemesis too, whether or not you'd think of it that way, um, is, is cool. It's interesting, you know? And like, and you can understand how there's emotional weight for him in that moment, but also that like the idea of him like actually, you know, um, being the one to like take in the Joker is something that is even like is really like narratively interesting to me. Like, I'm sure it won't play out that way, right? But like, how cool would that be? How much? How much would that throw the Joker, right? <laughs> the the visual elements that get pulled to connect you to like to connect gordon's uh fear and hate of the character uh gets pulled a lot from the killing joke which to your point Pete, is like one of the more well-known books so you know you have that knowledge when he's over the bed and he has you know the hand in his in his hair that's when he first becomes joker uh the the blue suited batman is the the, the batman that alan moore wrote uh, the when he has the camera and in his you know the was it the vacation Joker. shirt yeah you know so like it, it draws so many illusions and so so well uh, or integrates them so well that it, it helps to drive uh, drive him as 
uh, Joker as a antagonist without putting him until the last page. Speaking to that, uh, that I feel like that actually serves a dual purpose because um, if you have missed the last, I don't know, 20 years of developments between these characters, there's very little that won't make sense to you. And it roots this story in, in, in another story that you probably are familiar with. Right. Uh, so there's not a lot lost in translation here. They don't even mention Jim's time as Batman, which of you know, of course, I think was smart as well. Um, so let let's talk about what actually happens in the issue. So this is taking place in the Infinite Frontier, of course. And if you read Infinite Frontier number zero, then you have a loose familiarity with the idea of a day, which is when this Joker toxin kills a bunch of people in Arkham, uh, whether they be residents, inmates, uh, workers, whatever. You know, these people died, including yeah. in that included in that is Bane. And of course, we know that uh, that was actually Scarecrow's doing. Right. Um, but the world at large doesn't. So Joker is, is you know, being blamed for this, uh, even though he presumably had nothing to do with it. Um, and Jim is propositioned to track and kill the Joker. Uh, by some woman who represents some family that wants him dead. I feel like that stuff will probably matter more later. Yeah. But for now, that's just the window dressing for this story that needs to be told. And one of the great things about this issue, and I think you have to give credit to the entire creative team for this, is the mood that's set mm -hmm. here. This is a very uh, moody book. Not, not like over-the-top dark, per se, but it very much gives me that vibe of like, okay, you know, this is a guy, Jim Gordon, who is troubled and haunted by his interactions with the Joker, as you would imagine one would be. Yeah. And so it actually adds a level of realism to a character who should be feeling worn and torn by now, you know, mm -hmm. uh, way more than you would dealing with Penguin or the gangsters that, that exist in, Bat in, in Batman's universe. Mm -hmm. Like the Joker is an extreme problem. And I love the idea that Jim has PTSD. Screw the war. Screw whatever else. He's got PTSD from this guy. This man is like the Joker has messed up uh, Jim Gordon so many times. Like, you know, personally, like how many times has uh, Jim Gordon been infected with Joker toxins or whatever? But in addition to that, you know, if that's not bad enough, you know, the big source material that this drawing from is the Killing Joke, where the Joker, you know paralyzes his daughter that's like almost worse than that is worse than like being personally paralyzed because like you know any family member it's like you do something to me that's one thing but you do something to the person i love most that, that that's even worse as well, his daughter right yeah. and and like on top of the fact that like it speaks to that <clears throat> that kind of running theme with the joker that that sean brought up right of that like well if it was if they had just killed him None of this would have happened, right? Like this is like the trauma that's been inflicted on his his children was totally preventable, and he knows that. Yeah. Well, and on top of all that, you know, Sean, you kind of glossed over the the A Day thing. He didn't just kill a bunch of people. In the book, it says he killed five hundred people, and there were something like six survivors or something. That was inmates. That was uh, regular, uh, you know, patients. That was security. That was nurses. That was doctors. And Jeremiah Arkham. Yeah, they um, um, they contextualized it, saying it was like the largest gas attack in history. So it's like yeah, a major terrorist yeah. event, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and not to mention, like Joker didn't do that, by the way. Right, right. But, that was scary. Yeah, but he's he is being blamed. Yes. I. It is kind of funny that if you haven't read that zero issue, you don't know that. Like, if you're just following the series, that's going to be revealed to you at some point. Oh yeah. But I think this kind of delves into a core question of like Batman fandom, which is like, why doesn't he just kill the Joker? That's like a question that comes up constantly in like Batman conversations. Why doesn't Batman or Jim Gordon just kill the Joker? That's, that's what this story is tackling. And considering the source material, I feel like at the end of the day, he's still going to have that same line, uh, you know, by the book. And and I, I think that he'll he's been asked to do this, but I don't know that he will, even though that is um, 
because you're right that is the question right but the the lesson of that book and presumably gordon's moral compass isn't gonna allow him right and that's the big idea here uh tinian does such a tremendous job of setting up the stakes right so Jim Gordon has legitimate reasons to want to kill the Joker. He's the Joker. He's impacted Jim, Jim's life in an extremely negative way. He is a negative debt on society if he lives. It just is what it is. He will always do something to negatively impact the world at large. Not to mention the fact that because of this offer he receives yeah. um, from the what was the character named Cressetta? Yeah, Cressetta. Yeah, Cressetta. Um, He's he stands to make twenty five million dollars or something like that, right? If he just kills the Joker, and obviously killing the Joker is not easy to do, regardless, because how do you even get to him, find him, blah blah blah. But the the bigger issue than that is Jim's morality. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's like, if you kill him, do you become him? And I sure. love the idea of that as a framework. For a Jim Gordon specific story, this really is something that could work. If you took Batman out of it and Joker and Jim and you, you know, you made a movie about this, I feel like this is something that could even easily be like a David Fincher uh movie. Yeah. Mm. Uh and to build on that point, Sean, I um I think that, that that the strength of that narrative is um for me at least deepened by the fact that he is old, that he's an old man at the end of his career. And that this is a loose end and that he's and there's like a line in it. I don't remember exactly what page it's on and I don't want to go digging for it. But it's basically the this kind of uh, contextualization of where he's at right in that like I think it's the woman. She's like, do you want to just uh, retire in this city that he's going to just attack over and over and over <laughs> again as you become too old to do anything about it? And yeah, like it's a great. Yeah. That's 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 like li- oh cool. Do you want to like live in your personal hell for the rest of your life and like you know and and again right like at, at what point is he unable to even be an actor anymore? And then like you know who's to say that his daughter doesn't die, that Batman doesn't die, that some other person that he has a connection to that he could have went on this mission when he was young enough? And you know what I mean? Like there's so much um, leveraging of that history in a way that is so earned and like leads to just a really like compelling hook, you know, for a character that we know so well. It, it leverages a question too, which is, you know, will exacting revenge bring Jim Gordon peace? And in addition to that, would killing the Joker like that be justice or would it be revenge? Well, I don't even know if it's a question of revenge because the big, the big line at the beginning and at the end is like, do you believe in evil? Like is joker ultimately evil and does that deserve to be punished in in an extreme way yeah i think to me the interesting moral question kind of becomes and and it's it's you know not a unique one uh among batman right but like i think it speaks to um more of a weakness in your in your moral character not being unwilling to compromise because you're like i don't want to know what that could do to me when it's like so you're not willing to take the responsibility of that action and you'll take but you'll take zero culpability in the death that results from you being unwilling to take that action you know yeah, and like that presumes a lot and that's the thing is i'm not necessarily like arguing <laughs> that but like i think i think that like it does kind of i feel like it's framed that way in a way because he goes and, and is mourning over his son's grave and thinking about his daughter being maimed and it's like he could have stopped it he could have you know I think the book wants you to think that Jim Gordon feels the weight of every single person the Joker has ever killed. Right. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's that's the point. Um, what the book also does expertly is it sets the Joker up as more of a specter yes. than yes. a character. Uh, but it doesn't just do that with the Joker. It, it does it with Batman as well. Mm-hmm. And it takes something that worked really effectively in the Joker uh uh, graphic novel that they released uh, uh, over a decade ago um, by Lee Bermeo and uh, I, can't, I can't remember who wrote it, but Ryan um, yes. yes, thank that you. Right. Uh, the Joker and Batman are characters who exist in that book, kind of on the mm-hmm. periphery. The main character is some schlub, um, and you see them in a way that you don't normally get to see those characters, where the book is not about them, uh, and it is, but it's not. And this is at least 
for now, constructed in a very similar way. So getting to see Batman perched up, but his narration is not present. You know, getting to see him interacting with Jim Gordon, handing him these files. Batman is actually uh, framed there in a, in a kind of a vulnerable way. He's got his leg up on yeah. the on the, uh, the the fire escape, and and you can see his his costume and stuff. You don't see Batman like that. Yeah, and it's very casual. Exactly, and I love getting to see these iconic characters in different ways than we typically do. The first book that came to mind with that kind of example and set, and this is the kind of thing I'm hoping we get, is Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka's Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. You, you know what, though, Sean? I'm, I'm really glad you called that panel out because I, I hadn't really clocked that before. Um, and, and I think that, that those kinds of moments, like with Jim, are something that, like, I don't know. I guess I never really like contextualize them with the weight that's appropriate when you think about the fact that Batman is not vulnerable around anyone, but that like this is like he's this casual with him, right? And he's like retired at this point. Like, why yeah. is he even keeping him in the loop, right? Right. Confidant. Because exactly, and they're friends, and yeah, he's an ally. Um, this this book also sets up really interesting intrigue with with the benefactor of Jim Gordon's mission. Like, yeah, who, what family people? is this? And what, like, what, what, yeah, what are their motives really? Like, really, what are their motives? And who's this guy that's like the muscle for Corsetta or whatever her name is? Yeah, what do they, what do they stand to gain from this? And maybe it's Bane. I don't know. Yo, that'd be a crazy twist. Yeah, I feel like the book sets you up to think it's Bane. What if it's Scarecrow? Uh, that'd be oh, he got big as part of his like. <laughs> grander mocking no not the guy in the come on oh <laughs> <laughs> no, i mean i mean the benefactor <laughs> okay I see that. oh okay uh, that, yeah that like that's actually, part of his grander machination interesting yeah. yeah that makes sense let's let's chat about the art uh Oof. so uh march is not an artist who i've seen recently but I remember, uh, I think he did Detective Comics. He did, he did something. Maybe it was the Asriel book uh, from many years ago um, that I really liked. Not the OG Asriel, like the second or third, yeah. whichever. Uh, but this feels like a very different uh, Gilliam March than I even remember. Um, I like it in most of the book. I like his style mostly. I think that there are times his characters look waxy or um uh fake like uh mannequins mm-hmm. yeah I, I feel like noticed that, yeah that came from the color for me i felt like like some of the lighting makes them feel kind of waxy well especially Crisetta. she yeah. just doesn't yeah. even look like a real person in any way in fact she looks to me like from uh batman 89 when jack nicholson has that girl with him who has half her face is like fucked up or whatever. He's like, oh, it's her. She looks like that character. Sure. But um, yeah, Arif Prianto's colors definitely accentuate a, a, a literal statuesque feeling that these characters give off. Yes. Um, I think also like the way that it builds a mood to your earlier point, the the contrast of colors, it's all pulp. Like all this is yeah. purples, dark greens, pinks, uh, reds, yellows. It's just, it evokes that, police drama feel that you would feel from a uh from a gotham book or something starring gordon and then it's such a sharp contrast to the bright colors when you go to belize which i thought was like fun because you get you go from this like really uber gritty place to this is now where you're going to find the joker in this like bright and vibrant area um and actually guillaume march came out with a book this week actually uh carmen who also slayed uh, on the art there really really good stuff mm. um i i you, you guys have both talked about the mood of the book and um you know marco just brought up the the color palette and and i wanted to to tie both of those into something that i connected with the book was that like it felt very much like a modern take on that like 80s um style of kind of like the first wave of books that address batman in this way like the whole you know sean made the point earlier of like kind of the presentation of of jim as like you know uh like kind of old and weathered and like really feeling the weight of of the history of his journeys and that 
feels like a thing that we were first experimenting with in that era. And like the darker, moodier palette, the excessive amount of captions, um, like, all those uh, things. Like Dark Knight, uh, uh, the Dark Knight Strikes Again or, or Returns. Yeah, or, yeah. Or even it, uh, Year One. Sure, yeah, like any of those. Like it, it very much evoked that mood for me, but mm. not in a way that felt like um, we're just aping this. And I think that was something that I really, really dug because I I love that era and and I you know I make no bones about it like that's an era that really I connect with a lot and the fact that it kind of feels like it was able to learn from those things and and kind of bring in some of the stylistic choices in a way that feels like new and modern is something that I feel like um, Tinian is like super deserves a, a pat on the back for but it's also very much accentuated by the art style. Uh, any thoughts on the punchline backup before we move on? Dude, I cannot care about these backup stories. They're really hard to connect with. I read it and I was just like, okay. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting world building, I guess. Just like how why punchline. I don't know why punchline is such a big figure. So for me, that was interesting. So why everybody's trying to defend her and why she's so popular and stuff. But similarly, I didn't connect to it to any degree. Here, Ken Dolfo's hot fire, though. She is so, so good. Like, yeah. if you think this is good, go read her her own stuff. Like, she is what's so like a good, good. What's a good example? Oh, uh, what's the one book? Um, damn, I love this book, too, but I'm blanking on the name. Um, I don't know. She's done Unsacred. Um God, I really want to remember this book. I would love to shout it out. I've shouted it out on the, sh- the show before. Um, Didn't she just come out with one recently? Yeah, she did. Unnatural. Uh, unnatural. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, okay. that book's awesome. I need to pick that up. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't have any thoughts on the backup. Yeah, it's good art. Adolfo is great, and that's it. Uh, all right, let's 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 move on. Let's talk about Children of the Atom. Number one, uh, this is a uh, a very long announced or much earlier announced book. Uh, we learned about this book over a year ago at this point, and we're finally getting it. Uh, this is by Vita Ayala with Bernard Chang on art, Marcelo uh, Maiolo on colors, and Travis Lanham on letters, of course, designed by Tom Muller. There were a lot of question marks about what type of book this was going to be. Obviously, the cover features characters who look a lot like characters that we're familiar with in the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Cyclops, you know, a, a, a character who looks like Cyclops, a character who looks like kind of like Gambit. Um, they're different but similar, and they appear to have the same powers. And the book is really just introducing us to these characters and building up what their world is like. Um, and for putting the question of in your mind of you know are these mutants or not um what did you guys think about this book this is a different a different book i didn't love it it was definitely peaks and valleys um like when i was getting into kind of like the first act where they get into their you know their first kind of mission as superheroes um hitting some of those beats it was kind of like I, I was like vibing with it. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, uh, you know, I like a young team. I like teenage superhero stories. The idea of them being like mutants who are like not ready to go to Krakoa and are kind of like doing the secret identity thing and everything. I'm like, okay, like, yeah, like that. I can see the value in that, especially in the context of everything else going on in the X universe right now. Like mm-hmm. that feels like a novel concept. Um, but as as we got into it, like, Late, like in the middle of that fight, I kind of got lost in the action, and I, I was like, "How many people are they fighting?" Like, and then it looked like it was only two, and I thought it was two, but then I thought it was three, and I just the the direction of that got really messy. I thought, and and it was hard to follow in a way that you know a straight up superhero fight should definitely not be. Um, and it could be that I don't know the characters that well, but. 
I also don't think that should matter. Like their designs were unique enough that I was able to follow who was who. Um, so I don't know. That was weird for me. And then when you get into kind of the rest of the issue, like I, when we get to the part where it's the, you know, like the A tier X-Men and they're talking about them, I didn't like that at all. I thought that dialogue felt really off. And, like, it didn't feel like the way that these characters... It didn't feel like their voices. It felt like everybody kind of had the same voice. And it it reminded me of that thing that you see in a lot of, like, early comics where it would be like we're having a conversation where I'm like, well, Sean, the way that I felt about the comic is that it felt like it was kind of like a comic, you know? And, Phil, how do you feel about the Phil feelings? It's just like, why is everybody saying everybody's names so much? And, like, like Wolverine felt like a way different Wolverine than the Wolverine that we've been hanging out with in Krakoa. And I don't know, like the way that Jean talks about Cyclops where she's like, sometimes you just don't know that there's a thing to do between all out war and nothing. And it's just so like that line actually really worked in reference to Cyclops. (laughs) I mean, maybe, but it just feels like the kind of thing that like, I just don't, I just don't feel like that. I I don't buy that. I don't buy that as a thing that your wife says to you in the. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. It rung hollow to me, and and I felt the same way about the scene in the school, where it's the two of them talking, and then they interact with these bullies, and it, it just felt like very contrived, you know, and not like unbelievable as an altercation, but just like I don't know. Like I just I wasn't. I, 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 it didn't feel believable to me, you know? I I also wanted to actually address what um, the art piece that Pete called out with the fight scene because I, I also was confused. That was like the first thing that threw me out of the book was I wasn't sure how it was, uh, it was sort of following and breaking out. But like flipping back through, it's actually doing the, the top fight. So like the typically the top three or two panels is one fight and that stays continuous throughout each of the next like three or four pages. And then the two panels underneath it follow another fight. And then the panels believe that follow another fight. And like that spreads out through each of the panels. So that, that took me like a second to adjust, but I agree that it it's, it was, it felt a little atypical than what you might see uh, for like a, a superhero fight and keeping things consistent and, and, and flowing um, from like a camera angle perspective. Mm. And um, uh I thought it was, I, I didn't think the dialogue was as contrived when the the OG X-Men were sort of chatting. It was more very, for me, like a, not expository, but they were just kind of uh, circling the sort of same conversation and it didn't interest me necessarily. I started to like where the, where at the school they were kind of going because I was curious about the, um, the two girls and like in their relationship and i was trying to understand like where um uh, where like uh, it seemed like there was like an affection one way but not being reflected the other uh, but then after that uh it, it like none of it had any stakes for me to want to necessarily keep reading it, it after that i just kind of like lost interest because they like we got to go to go on this adventure and we're going to step to the gate and then they feel like they don't know where they belong. And it kind of confused me narratively. I was also confused as to what happened. Did they try to go through the gate and they just walk through or yeah. that was what yeah. happened? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, and I just, again, I, I guess it was like a lack of clarity for me in in the art and, and not that it's bad, but it was just like, it felt ambiguous to me. I was not quite sure what had happened and that was going to be, I was like, oh, I'm going to ask what everybody else thought about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, for me, this issue only worked on the level that I was curious about the personal relationships between these younger characters. Um, they, they were interesting to me, like, uh, um, what's the, what's, what's the Cyclops analogs name? What's her name? Uh, I forget her. Cyclops Cyclops last. Wait, really? But what's her Ingenious. name? Name. I don't uh, remember. Uh, buddy. Don't name. Buddy. Buddy. Yeah. Buddy. Buddy. Okay. So I was interested in Buddy. I liked where her head was at and kind of getting to follow her and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I didn't care at all about the interaction between the actual X Men. Uh, 
that was four pages that really, really, really felt like it could have been two. Um, <laughs> or one. Are you fucking kidding? Like, Jesus. It was it, like four pages of them saying the same four things. It's that decompression style, but go on, Sean. Uh, and, you know, I'm with Pete where, like, the book presents Cyclops as an idiot. Like, he gets sunned by Gene when, it, like, it wasn't even called for. He's like, I'm not against outreach. I want them safe too. And Gene says, we know. Sometimes you just forget that there are steps in between non-interference and all-out war. Pete already called that out. Um, in the context of where the conversation was at, at that moment, I'm not really sure where that even came from. Yeah. Uh, and it just felt like something that Vita just wanted it wanted Gene to say. Uh, these don't feel like the X-Men to me. Uh, this feels like this conversation is really weird, and it's not even one I think they would have. I think that they would go. Based on House and Powers, they would go and try to get yeah. these characters to come back. And if they didn't want to, that would be fine. But Cyclops literally did that in House of X number one, I think, and mm. it was fine. And there didn't appear to be any deliberation. So why are they talking about this? Right. Why also, do we have to see it? And like Wolverine also, makes that comment where he's like, we've been doing this for years. Why would we do anything different in this one scenario? And it's like, right, exactly. Even when it meant conflict, they did it in the uh, crossover with the Fantastic Four, Franklin Richards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think and, that's what I said. Yeah. Oh well, oh well, yeah. I I thought Phil was referring to the the X Men Fantastic Four yes. crossover, but yes. yeah, in like the first page of Hawks number one, Cyclops goes and uh, talks to Franklin Richards and, and it's whatever. threatens the yeah. Fantastic Four. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so well, <laughs> they're not afraid of the conflict, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and it's like these are just five random kids, like, and Nightcrawler's whole thing of like, well, we don't know their whole situation. It's like. Right, so go find so out. Go have a conversation. That's the suggestion. Like, why are we debating this for four pages? Um, like, yeah. this... go through the fucking portal and find them and have have a talk. Great. It feels like a pilot, kind of like a standalone pilot that you would see in like an X Men cartoon or something, where it's like these are the X Men kids or something, <laughs> and like the conversation the adults are having, like they're in the background or whatever. Um, it to me, it feels like. It feels like Marvel is trying to do like a My Hero Academia thing. And these are like the cosplaying kids that are inspired by the, like, the big X-Men characters. That That's like the attempt. I think like narratively, it's very much a decompression style where like the interest is like in trying to learn more about these characters. If you're not interested in the characters like Pete alluded to, what's the hook? That's mm -hmm. not, I don't, I don't know if. Did Pete? Did you say that, Pete? No, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say I'm not disinterested in the characters ah. as much as I just don't. I don't think this story served them at all. Mm. The, why? Like, why is the crux of the story about whether or not the X Men are gonna come scoop them? Like, I don't care. Show, just show them. Just show these kids. Let the issue end with the X Men arriving to come talk to them, and let the next issue be. Oh my God, we're speaking to our idols, and we have to tell them we don't fucking want to go with them. Like, <laughs> there's heat there. That feels like yeah. a no-brainer. I, right. I just, I don't know. I don't feel like the X Men needed to say one single word in this issue to get the point across that they were trying to get across because they already got that point across in the scene just prior like why these did, people were not ready to go and it's like why does that scene even exist then right like why yeah. even have them talk to pixie and and fucking worm and whoever right like th what's the point of that so on the art side of things i feel like the uh the fight scene that we referenced is very confusing uh i've been reading comics for over 15 years at this point and it still happens where I have to like double back, but this was like crazy. Like it, it, it just yeah. was like, I don't I, even get I this. thought it was just me. Uh, Cause I'm like, this was, this was weird. Maybe somebody just didn't notice or something or like, or like maybe someone else would pick up on it, but I was super confused by that. There's not enough establishing shots. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the shots are tight. There's not enough establishing shots and it's not immediately clear who all the players are, which makes it extremely difficult to follow what's happening. You don't know uh, the stakes. This is this is not how you present that. Like there literally is no 
there is no establishing shot. There is no there is no shot that that tells you this is where we're at. This is who's there. This is what's happening. If the first shot on the in the book is a tight shot on a villain shooting guns. And the next one, a villain shooting a gun. The next one, a person doing whatever. Like that's that's it. And they have like kind of similar color schemes. Yeah. Like that that was a problem I had where it's like the uh I forget his name, but the the young angel um analog. He, yeah. He's got like a, like purple is kind of like the primary thing in his scheme and he fights the woman on their squad who's also in purple and you have these like super tight shots where you can basically just see some of their face and their body and it's like like you can tell who it is but it's very easy to make that mistake right of also, like which purple person is hitting the other purple person and and not only are these new characters but the people that they're fighting against are characters we haven't really seen yes. in a very long time right. so yeah they exist and you couldn't know who they are I didn't know who they were. Um, and the fact that there are people who are depowered during M-Day, you don't realize how long that was ago? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't remember these people. But the other thing I wanted to say was that, in particular with the X-Men, their faces are awful. Like, I hate to be that critical. Um, I've seen Bernard's work before and thought it was high quality. But, like, Cyclops and Gene... I looked at that Jean Grey and I thought Sean will not like this Jean Grey. Look at their faces. Wait, dude, flip to the page right before that. Yeah, you got All right. it. Man. And then look at Storm. She got a potato face. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I'm up top, you up guys, top, up one. You guys on uh, YouTube. Uh, right there. Yeah. yeah. Potato face. I mean, yeah, even you know. even uh, Wolverine, like on that same page, like he just, he's his face is very round. It's like. <laughs> Everyone, there's there's a problem with everyone's face. Uh, Nightcrawler is the only one you can you can say maybe it's not that bad, but he's also non-human, so it's a little different. There's there's more grace with how you can present his face. But. Even like the last uh, the the shot where where Jean's like one more game, and then you know Storm's like only if we're on the same side. Like their faces look really like similar. Hmm. You yeah. know, like it's yeah. like like their noses have almost the same shape. Their eyes have almost the same shape. Their brows are very similar. Like the only real difference is like the the way that their jaws are squared, and it's just like I I did not... want to call attention. I did want to call attention to that panel. Um, because are we getting a vibe, guys? <laughs> I I did get a vibe, and I don't I don't. Bro, all the X Men are fucking all the time. That's what, That's we're what I'm saying. And Krakoa. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I, the premise of this book is something I'm really interested in, and I'm disappointed that I, I found very little to hang on to here. And, like, especially because I'm, I'm with you, Sean, and the thing that I was most interested in was getting to know these characters, and the only real scenes that we got with them where it's just getting to know them is, like, the shortest part of the book and it's predom it's predominantly dominated by like a very very predictable altercation. Sure. Right? Of like, oh, you guys are sympathetic with mutants. Uh, we're analogs for like Trump voters. Okay, great, we get it. Like your dad probably voted for the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Marvel <laughs> Universe's Trump or whatever. I get it. You're whatever, right? Like it's so like, okay, this is where we're going. Like, I would rather just have them have a conversation about their friends and have her wax about how she's in love with her best friend's boyfriend. Like, that is sure. way more interesting. That's personal drama. That is like, oh, this is a person with wants and desires and feelings. And then, like, they talk about her dad a little bit. But it's like, it's two pages. Like, give me the four pages back from watching the Potato Face X-Men argue about how to talk to kids. I think they're deliberately trying to tease that out. But, you know this is our first issue. Like you got to really establish your characters and I don't think it does a great job of that. Um, what I do want to highlight on the positive side of things is I think there's two pages that are paneled really interestingly. And I, I want to give those a shout out. There's a page where um, it's like the basketball game or whatever. And it's just like the, the, the player in the middle and like the way all, all oh, the panels yeah. around it. I thought that was really neat. Um, and then the other page is when I go through the gate and everything kind of looks like a shattered glass, shattered glass or whatever. 
I thought that also looked really neat. Just in a page with art that we've criticized, there's at least two pages where I think it at least looks really interesting. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know about this book going forward. Uh, I'll probably give it a second issue just because. But I'm. Th- this was a this was a, an, a longer than normal uh, issue. Yeah. And uh, I don't really feel like they use their page count that well. So I'm a little bit nervous that when it goes back to, you know, normal page count that there might be some problems there. But yeah, in any event, uh, let's move on from Children of the Atom and let's talk about Proctor Valley Road, a Grant Morrison book. We're talking love, about a Grant Morrison book. Love it, Sean. Love that we get to talk about them. It's- I know, right? It's so funny because I read Proctor Valley Road before uh, Children of the Atom, and I honestly think that it made me dislike that book more. Because uh, you feel like this book does the whole like teenager thing better. Yeah, because it's like it's a very similar thing of like this is a story about a, a group of teenagers and they are friends and have these relationships and they're going to go on this supernatural adventure and blah, 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 right? And I immediately have an idea of who they are and what their relationships are like. And they have dialogue moments that feel authentic. And like, it feels like there's stakes. I was immediately interested in this. It's a great first issue. I thought, well, uh, let me, let me get the, uh, the sure, creative sure, team sorry. out of the way. So, uh, it's Grant Morrison and Alex child. I'm not sure who that is. Mm. Uh, also with art by Naomi Franquiz colored by Tamara Bonvillain and lettered by Jim Campbell. So that's, uh, Alex Child aside, not knowing who that is, this is a pretty bomb creative team, and uh, it, it, it certainly comes across. Now, I did not know what to expect uh, from an art perspective because I don't feel like I saw any preview material. So I was struck by the art style, but it very, very quickly grew on me, and I, I came to love it. Uh, this book doesn't feel like anything that I've seen from Grant before. Yeah, it, it certainly yeah. gave me like Paper Girls, Stranger Things vibes. But you know, Grant's always going to do those types. Anything Grant does is always going to be done in a way that is unique to Grant. While I certainly see how this could be that, I didn't feel Grant as I was reading this. Yes. Uh, I think I think it, one of my favorite qualities of Grant is their versatility as a creator. They they can't be bogged down into one kind of thing. But my main thing reading this that I feel like kind of touches on your comments about this not feeling like a Grant book is it definitely feels like a spec for a screenplay. So it's, I uh, Kale hasn't gotten a word in it in a while. Well, this this felt like the first. 10 minutes of an of, a, of an episode yeah yeah like it didn't it like the character interactions were thick and, and and there and they played off each other decently well um i actually am not crazy about any of the characters frankly mm. um but they work together well enough but they're to me i think similar to children of the atom i just didn't feel like there was enough to sink my teeth into you know it's it's a, a, a horror book where the horror happens in the last three pages well it's the first issue yeah but what i'm but what i'm saying is i, I need more you know the the rest of the book is bright and shiny you know I, th- I think it served as a good contrast for me because you get like the opening, oh, there's, you know, there's a, a monster in the road and uh, it, like a little bit of mystery. Then you get, okay, let's establish who the players are and why we should sort of care. And then it's, all right, well, now we're back with the monsters and this is a lead into the next issue. Like it's a, for, for, my, for me, it felt like a good cliffhanger um, because it, it set all that up in the, in the beginning. I just wanted to add this context. Uh, Alex Child is a British screenwriter. This is from Boom's uh, post about this book. He's a British screenwriter from Oxfordshire known for his work on BBC's Holby City and Sky One's Temple. Uh, And then he's working on a a short film that he wrote and directed with uh, 
David Troughton and uh, Peter Wright, who are both. Speaks to what Phil brought up. Exactly. Um, Which is, that was, I wanted to just add that because I think, I think it, yeah, it definitely feels like it's structured in that way. Um, TV show. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I totally echo Marco's sentiments in terms of that worked for me because I think um, for this kind of story, I, I think it's important to establish a connection to the real world angle of it so that when the um, horror stuff, the supernatural stuff really starts kind of escalating, um, that it feels like there are stakes and that it's grounded in, in relationships that feel realistic. Yeah, th- this book takes an approach that I think uh, is pretty, you know, pretty normal uh, in that it introduces the world and the people and why you should care about them before it introduces the horror part, right? And so in genre stories, when done well, the genre part is actually the least interesting part. Yes. Uh <laughs> And for me, that was certainly the case here. I cared about the horror part because I started to care about these kids. And the biggest difference between Children of the Atom and this one is that uh, if you showed me or if I'm looking here at, at, the, at the characters, I can tell you what each of them is like, yeah. you know, what kind of kid they are. Whereas with Children of the Atom, I can't do that for any of them at all really i can't tell you what they're what kind of person are they um and 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 grant and alex did a tremendous job of establishing who these girls are and what their relationships are and what the world is because this book is also uh you know taking place not now you know it's a there's it's a period as well so it has to juggle so many things and i feel like uh it does that extremely well in my opinion yeah i agree um and it, it it's fun that the uh the shittiest guy in the story is the one that eats shit immediately too <laughs> hey at least they weren't black right because <laughs> you know the black person always dies first in the, home the only yeah i mean right the only black uh, guy that we've met has he, he's good he's cool i wonder <laughs> if that's true in british horror hmm. interesting i don't know Probably not. <laughs> it's probably not as common. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. There are black people over here. Sure. There you go. Um, so, how did how did um so speaking on the period piece part of it? Uh, for those of you who like the issue, um, how how did that work for you? It's fine. It kind of reminded me of uh, the most recent uh, Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in America, or in Hollywood, excuse me, where um, it's like late 60s, early 70s, yeah. kind of Manson stuff. Uh, and I think I think the way it looks is good. It really kind of feels like that early 70s uh, California uh, characters uh, look that way. I, I'm, I'm into that kind of whole period. I, I think narratively works just fine. And I like the kind of, there's like I'm not sure where it's going yet, but it definitely seems like there's kind of like this juxtaposition between like paranoia around the Vietnam War and like the horror elements that are taking place in this area, you know? Well, we'll see how that shakes, but it feels like there's a deliberate kind of contrast between the two that can be compared. Uh, It worked for me perfectly fine. I uh, don't have any particular love for any period. And so unless it's the 90s, I don't really care. Uh, but this one was cool because I guess I don't really know much about what teens were like at that time. Mm. So seeing them like smoke weed and, you know, they're trying to make this money and they have all these like schemes and stuff. It really made me think about, um, you know, is this true to what, what young people were like? Uh, and I like that. I don't know. Um, I really dug like that scene of them. Like they're like sitting in the the junkyard and they're like trying to figure out how to make like eight bucks, you know, yeah. <laughs> like they're just sitting yeah. there smoking weed and like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it worked for me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. The, for me, the art was pretty, it was pretty standout. It, it, it yeah. Um, it was really just, um, captured emotion really well it was a little more cartoony felt like 
Alyssa Trayman from Giant Days. Dude, yes. I was just just about to ask you if you got that vibe from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super, super hard. Uh, so really, really dug that because I'm a, I'm a big fan of that book. And like you also get a lot of, in, if you go to the very last page, um, the panel where the four of them are just uh, standing there, you, they, you really get like their vibe all the characters emotions kind of you can you can kind of tell where they sort of fit uh, i forgot who brought it up brought it up but somebody mentioned you can tell how these characters might act and and feel and even in the junkyard scene you can see how one is more straight uh laid out when it's a little, little you know smaller somebody's uh, smiley you can really see the the emotion and and who they are in the body language and in the face so i really really well done art I also like how um, the cartoony style juxtaposed against the monsters is really cool. Mm, yeah. Um, it makes those things seem like way more sinister. Mm. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that as well. Um, yeah, Kale, you didn't like the issue, but uh, how did that, the period of it work for you? the the time period yeah um i didn't even realize they they were telling a period piece until uh they started talking about the war and uh at the carnival and then i was wildly confused do you not read captions (laughs) where's the captions that says they're in 1970 whatever the first page where it says chapter one janice joplin started it the bottom corner of it says june 1970 Chalu- <laughs> chula vista california oh, utterly missed that utterly oh. missed that all right that's so, so funny I guess, I guess i don't yeah i guess i don't maybe that's why i didn't like it it always kills me man that's really funny um yeah why would you put is... that at the bottom what terrible who's this letterer I'm going to call up. this guy on the phone. Just look, how about you read the page? <laughs> you know what? Even though you're right, he should have read it. I kind of agree that that's a weird placement for that particular caption. Like, I, why I, not right under the, like, it put the, the thing that stands out, the chapter title at the bottom. Sure. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is a book that I am actually gleefully excited to follow. Same. Uh, it feels really fresh and fun, even though obviously it's kind of like well-worn already to tell stories about young people in another time than now. Um, we've seen that a lot recently, yeah. but this feels like a very welcome addition to that. And I can't wait to see what kind of crazy stuff these girls are going to get into. It's because now sucks. <laughs> what sucks? Now. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, how could oh. they, how can you have a horror mystery if they don't have cell phones? That's the thing, right? Is I I I think I I don't know. I I like period pieces that are specifically about kids too. Like I I do think there is something kind of like cool about um, taking a look at a, at a period like that where you can kind of like boil down, you know, some of the stuff that like that we would think of, right? Like this is a pre cell phone world right and the idea that like <clears throat> you could go out and and drive right or like the fact that like oh these kids never came home and their parents have no idea where they are and there's no way they can get in contact with them right like that is something that works better in in the 70s right um that is kind of cool but it's also that like it is a time that is foreign to us like in the way that sean said right it's like i these are not my experiences and that that makes them feel uh fresh in a way I was jealous of the damn kids in both books because the, in, in Children of the Atom, these these kids are just hanging out. They don't have coronavirus. Exactly. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Look at the five of us hang out. It's like, damn, bro, I want to go fucking smoke in a junkyard with you guys. You know, come on. <laughs> I'm down with that. Uh, <laughs> and I'm also, kill. yeah, go ahead, kill. You get coronavirus. Not only will you get coronavirus, you get tetanus. In the junkyard? <laughs> I'll take it, man. It's fucking beautiful wow. out. It is. It is nice out. And uh, this was a really cool book. Uh, I, mean, I can't wait to, to follow it going forward. Um, it's It feels nice to be reading something new by Grant again. Mm-hmm. I love that this. feels new. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super down. 
So that's going to do it for our reviews here today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed our presentation of these three different books. Uh, if there are any books that you guys want us to review, definitely write in at the comicspiles at gmail.com and let us know. Uh, you can leave us a review or, or a rating wherever it is you listen. And I'm sure that, that there's a comment section there too. Drop it there, wherever it is that you want to uh, let us know what you want us to review. Um, if you're watching us on YouTube, leave us a like. Drop a comment, share this video with your friends, subscribe to our channel. All those things are free to do. They help us out a lot more than they cost you. So hook it up and let us know your thoughts. We'll be back next week, inevitably, with more books to talk about. So thank you very much for listening. We're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week.